Turn to your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. That's where we will find ourselves today. And this kind of kicks off where we'll be going for the next couple of weeks. Like I said, this, this morning we're looking at the third servant's song. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a, very, is a prophetic book. And he's constantly talking about the things that will happen in the future. And uh, specifically, in four different locations, they call them the, the servant's songs, the four servant songs. And prior to Isaiah chapter 50, you've got two other servant songs. And they're all talking about Christ as the Messiah and how he will come. He is the perfect servant of the Lord. And so you've got, you've got the first servant song, the second. And I know I didn't preach those two because I didn't entitle this the servant song. I entitled this series Face Like Flint because we're going to be talking about, eventually we're going to be talking about um, Palm Sunday next week, Christ's entry into Jerusalem. The next week we're going to be talking about his death and resurrection. In the final week, we're going to look at the ascension of Christ. And the whole point of what Christ came to do was fulfill the will of God. That's the reason why Christ came. Christ came to do that. And Scripture tells us here, and as I said earlier, it says that he set his face like flint so that he would not be ashamed. And we know that Christ was not put to shame. He was glorified, and we're going to talk about that some today. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because that's the way I lose track of time. And I know many of you would really like for me to finish on time today. Uh, which, <laughs> don't hold your breath. <laughs> it wouldn't be good. But, uh, you know, how many of you have ever set your mind on a goal? I know we all have set our minds on different things in our lives. Have you ever planned toward a vacation? I think everybody, everybody in here. And if you've, I know we have gone to Disney World in the past. Probably won't be going anymore. Won't be going anymore. Uh, but back in the past, when we planned those trips, you had to sit down. You had to do a lot of planning. You had to do a lot of planning. There's places to eat inside there. There's meet and greets. You've got little kids. You want them to, you want them to see all the characters and all that kind of stuff. A lot of planning going on in a vacation, especially a big one like that. Or if you've made the trek all the way out west. It came back. A lot of planning in that. Big vacations take a lot of planning. Uh, planning a surprise birthday party. You ever try to plan one of those? Those are challenging as well. I have to say, Julie got me one time real good. I can't remember what birthday it was. It was my 30th birthday party, and I can't remember where we were supposed to go, but we ended up going back to the church. I was like, what? Surprise. But anyway, it was a great birthday party. It was a great birthday party. A lot of people were there. We had, a, we had a wonderful time. But I was really expecting something different, but it was a blessing to be around all the different people I was with. Um, how many of you ever made a, a decision to plan toward retirement? That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And then, of course, one of the hardest, uh, most difficult decisions is to plan arrangements for your funeral. You know, we've got to make plans. And when we make those plans, we've got to set our mind on these things. You can't be distracted when you're planning these things because you could leave something out. You might forget to book a room at a hotel somewhere if you're going out west. You might forget, you know, what time you schedule something if you're going on that very scheduled Disney World trip, you know. Uh, it, it, there's different things going on. You've got to be focused. You've got to be focused when you set this plan. And I want to tell you this, when the, when the Lord God, and it's, it's how, that's how the sovereign Lord is noted in this text. God the Father, when he made the plan of his plan of redemption, he had his mind made up. He knew. 
And then when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, because he is God, he set his face like flint. He set his focus on Jerusalem. And there wasn't nothing that was going to sidetrack him. He had plenty of things that could have potentially sidetracked him and distracted him from what he needed to do. He even had a disciple who said, Lord, I'll stand by you and do anything. And then what did he do? He ran. That could be very distracting, you know? So there's a lot of things that we have got to stay focused on. And Christ is the perfect servant. Some translations call him the disciple. But he set his face like flint toward the goal he was to achieve. Charles Spurgeon once spoke, there was no one to take up this divine challenge, no one to answer for guilty man. To the call of God for no one who could save, there was no answer but the echo of his own voice. It was just the echo. No man could do what Christ was sent here to do. It had to be done by God. If you read through Hebrews, you can see where heaven required a more perfect sacrifice than anything we could do here on earth. And the perfect sacrifice was Jesus Christ. So he had to set his face on the goal that his father God had already placed before the foundations of the world. The Bible tells us the Lamb of God was slain. So he set his face toward that goal and he hit it straight on. And he did what the Lord God had him to do. And as we look at this today, as we look into the into the inspired, the infallible, inerrant word of God. We're going to read how the servant Jesus Christ was given language. He was given language for encouragement. He was given instruction for discipline. He was given help for his resolve to set his face like flint toward the cross. But he also gave his body for our salvation. And then we've got to figure out what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? That's all addressed here in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 11. As we look at this text today, we start out there in verse 4. I've entitled this portion of the scripture, The Lord God gave his language for Christ to speak encouragement. Listen to what it says. It says, The Lord God has given me. You'll notice throughout this text, The Lord God has given the servants of things. And right here he says, what has he given me? He's given me the tongue of the learned. So what, is this, what does this mean, the learned? And you see that at the beginning of verse 4 and at the latter part of verse 4. Well, the scripture tells us that he is a disciple that is thoughtful in his speech. He is the disciple that is thoughtful in his speech. Listen, to John 5, 19 tells us that Jesus said, Most assuredly I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own, do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 6.38, it says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then also in John 8, 28, then Jesus said unto them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. He is the learned. He is the disciple. These previous verses, this, this, from these previous texts from John, we see that this servant, which represents the coming Messiah, speaks only as he has been taught. By God the Father. 
only. He only speaks by how he is taught by God the Father. And this word learned in the New King James is translated in other ways. In the English Standard Version, it says those uh, who are taught. It says, uh, it said, the Lord God has given me, has given to me the tongue of those who are taught. He has given me the tongue of the disciple. He has given me the tongue of those who are instructed. The disciples comes out of the New American Standard Bible. Those who are instructed comes out of the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible. So most clearly, this is someone who sits directly at the feet of a master to learn the exact way to reproduce what is being produced at the master's will. This is who this is. This is who this is. Christ, he has sat at the feet of, of God the Father in observance of his Father. He sits at the right hand of the Father even today. He sees how the Father rules and reigns. And he, he knows how he is supposed to act. He is the servant. He has been given the tongue of the learned. And we don't, you know, we don't just learn to learn, right? We learn to put that instruction and knowledge into practice so it may become wisdom. You don't just learn to, to retain, I mean like, oh great, you know about that, what you going to do with it? We, we learn things so we can do something with it, right? YouTube's one of the greatest inventions ever if you ever want to fix your car or fix your washing machine or do something like that, right? If you're like me, I don't know how to do something, search it on YouTube, you know? And you'll get about three or four or five different folks that will show you how to do it. Some people take about 35 minutes. Some people can take about 10. You're like, I'm watching the 10-minute one, which is sometimes not as helpful. Might want to go back and watch the 30 minutes. But, but you sit underneath someone else. And it blows my mind that these guys own garages and they're teaching lay people that have no, no knowledge of how to fix this stuff how to fix it. It blows my mind. Right? I mean, like, why would you do that? I'd, I'd be like, no, I'm not posting that on there. Come down to the shop and pay me to do it, you know? But that's just me. But, but he sits over there, and you watch, and you learn. And, and Jesus Christ saw the Father, and he was, he was the learner. He was the disciple, and he was being taught. And we see that this taking these things in and then applying them and practicing them, we can see that evidence in Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, W.E. Vine wrote in his book, on his commentary on Isaiah, he said, How the Lord was to speak a word in season to him who is weary is told out in the Gospels, both in his public ministry and in the comfort he gave to the widow, the diseased, the distressed, and the tempest-tossed. It wasn't just a head knowledge. It was something that was supposed to be moved out through the hands and the feet because the heart was for the people. If my heart is just for myself, let me just retain knowledge and never share it. But if, but if I am as Christ has called me to be a disciple and to love people as Christ has called me to love people, it should be fleshed out through my life. I just don't sit in a Sunday school month after month, week after week and just retain, you know, just soak it in like a sponge and never let it be squeezed out. We, we've got to get there. We've got, to not, we've got to not just take in the Word of God. We've got to live out the Word of God. I mean, we could be a blockhead. You know what I mean? <laughs> Literally. We can be a blockhead. Or we could be somebody who's active and being constantly 
transformed into the image of Christ by putting the words of Christ into action. It's who we need to be. We need to be disciples of Christ. As Christ was referenced as a learner, one who was taught a disciple or being instructed, you and I are to be in the same manner as Christ. We are to learn. We are to be instructed. We are to be discipled by the word of God. And when we take what was prophesied of the Christ to speak to those that are weary, we need to do the same through his word from our lives. You and I know plenty of people who are weary. You may even be weary. And you need to, be, you need to have the word of God spoken to you. And it says right there in the beginning of verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. We have sat beside friends and family members that have gone through different things when they've been weary. They might be dealing with a, a wayward child. They might be dealing with a prodigal child. They may be dealing with a sick child. They may be dealing with a... With a, with a marriage that's on the rocks. They might be dealing with the loss of a loved one, a child, a spouse, a parent, a grandparent. People are weary. If we're never in the Word of God, we're not going to know how to respond and give them the right type of words that they need. Come to the Word of God. See how Christ loved people when they were weary. Go through the Gospels. Jesus dealt with weary people all the time. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do you get rest when you come to Christ? You find comfort in his word. You find comfort by the love of the people that love Jesus and love you. Because they've been in the word of God, so they know how to speak these, these words that are in season for those who are weary. And for you to know how, when that season may be for that individual, you've got to be prepped in your own word, in, in, God's, in God's word for your own self. Scripture memorization is one of the greatest things that we need to have. And we have taken, we have, we have become lazy to that. And listen, I'm just going to be flat honest with you. In all the years that I've done vacation Bible school, now I've either obviously been in vacation Bible school, or been a teacher or an assistant or something for probably close to 44 years. You know, I mean, I've been in church my whole life. So I've been, I've been around vacation Bible school. There's, there's very, and, and I'm not trying to shoot on vacation Bible school because this is something for every household, Sunday school class. There should be a memory verse that we're working on weekly or at least minimal monthly. You know what I'm saying? We need to be writing God's word on our hearts so that we will not sin against him. And it's not just for our own righteousness. We should be writing God's word on our heart for other people's hope in their weariness. Scripture memorization is not just for our own selves. Matter of fact, scripture memorization a lot of times ends up not being for our own selves. It's for others. And I think you'll find so much joy in that. It, it, and being able to speak a, 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 an apt word, a word at just the right time. I think the Bible says it's something like, an, like a choice apple. 
if you could speak, uh, you speak the word at the right time. Guys, we, we've got to be in the word of God. And how was Jesus Christ able to, to, to be able to give the right words? This servant? Well, we know that he fought off Satan by the word of God, didn't he? It is written, it is written, it is written. Satan would say this, Jesus would say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus was weary. I mean, he had already not eaten for 40 days, and then Satan took him out there. He is weary. And how did he combat it? With the word of God, because he was learned. There's times when you're going to feel like, I've been out, I've been tempted by the devil. I mean, for four, I mean, like he fasted for 40 days, and then he went out and was tempted by the devil. But there's times when you may feel like you have been tempted for 40 days. And the only way you're going to be able to handle that is by the Word of God. And then obviously, having a church body that cares about you and letting them know. Letting them know. If you've got a need, talk to people. Cry out to the Lord. Call out to your church family. Somebody, I know the Lord will respond, but prayerfully somebody inside a church will respond as well. The second thing I want us to look at, the Lord God gave his instruction for Christ to show discipline in his life. These, you know, Christ is the greatest model for us. You know, Christ, this is, when I say for discipline, to show discipline, it's not that Christ was being disciplined in a punishment type way. He is being disciplined for godliness. We're going through the book once a month, Spiritual Discipline for the Christian Life, and it talks about uh, spiritual disciplines and how we need to have them for godliness. And, and he had these disciplines because he was a, he was a, uh, he sat underneath the greatest teacher, God the Father. And he was, he was given the tongue of the learned. And, and God wants to give us these things. He wants to give us the tongue of the learned. He wants to give us the ear. He, he wants to give us the ear of the learned. He wants to open our ears so we can have that. God is a gracious God. That, I, when I was reading this, there's a lot of different angles. As I was looking at this, I thought, man, I could come at this from so many different angles. But it just, it starts off with the first line, the Lord God has given me. And then I see the Lord God has uh, opened my ear. He has given me the ear of the learned. And then it goes down and says, the Lord God will help me. So he gave his help. And then you look at Jesus and what Jesus gave. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. But a disciple... He was a disciple because he had, he, had, he had been given the instruction of Christ to be disciplined in, in, in a life that glorifies God. And a disciple with openness of ear and dedication of heart. This awakening, look right there in the middle of verse 4. It says, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. This awakening of the servant's ear is understood to mean devotion to God's will. The Lord Jesus knew all the suffering that lay before him. And with undeviating steadfastness, he pursued his pathway to the cross. And when Isaiah was writing this, it is referencing, uh, and it is referencing the morning by morning as, in, as to an intimate relationship that has an everyday occurrence. This is what we've got to have. We've got to have that morning-by-morning morning interaction with Christ, with God the Father. We've got to have that interaction with the Word. It will awaken your ear. It will awaken your ear, and it will 
Soften your tongue. The Bible talks about how dangerous the tongue is. If you want your tongue to not be dangerous or set on fire by, by hell, as James says, you need to be underneath the instruction of God's Word. That is the only fire extinguisher of the tongue is the Word of God. If you're outside of, of the Word of God, your tongue is like a, like a flamethrower. But if you're underneath the Word of God, it will, it will put it out. It'll calm it down. Doesn't mean that sometimes you're going to let the flesh jump out. You're going to say something you shouldn't. But what it'll do, it'll extinguish a lot of those flames that's going to come spouting out. You know, you don't have to be Puff the Magic Dragon. You can, you can, you can, you can speak kind words to people. And God wants us to be that way. But it comes through discipline. You know, the Lord God, it says, it, it, He doesn't awaken Him for no purpose. He wakens Him up. With a purpose. It is for him to grow in dependence and knowledge of the word of God. He says he awakens my ear to hear as the learned. God wakes him up to grow, to be disciplined, to be holy. He wakes him up for that purpose. And by his, the servant's ears being open, he is empowered to not be rebellious. He says, I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And that is absolute truth when you think about Christ and he was on the way to the cross he even knelt down in the garden of Gethsemane and he said uh, not my he said Lord if there if this cup may pass from me let it be so but if not not my will but thy will be done he did not turn away from it he was not rebellious he did ask if there was another way can it be done and the Lord God said no and the son said I submit my will to you. And so he followed through. And he did as God the Father told him to do. He was disciplined to the cause. To the instruction of God the Father. And rebellion against God is commonly found in rebellion against his word. People say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, does it say it in the Bible? Well, yeah, but I don't know if... Well, then, you're in rebellion. It's black and white. Right there, okay? You, you can argue with me all day long, and, and we might have different opinions, but let's go back to the black and white, inspired, infallible, inerrant word, and you're going to see it right there, and, and hey, it's going to make you or me one right or wrong. But either way, it's right. And either you agree with it, and you're right, or you can disagree with it and be wrong and called rebellious. <laughs> one of the two. And at the latter part of this text, uh, especially at the end of verse 9, you find out what happens to those who are rebellious. They may think they're going to go and do something great for a while, but you're going to find out what it's like if you want to be rebellious against the Word of God. You know, we cannot, uh, we, when, we, when we look at this and we see that Christ did not turn away, we see that he was not rebellious, this is to show his focus was on the glory and the righteousness of God even at his own expense. There are times when, when we're going to have to give glory to God and live for his honor and righteousness at our own expense. It's hard. But the most common way that we are in familiarity or similar to Christ is in our suffering. Well, I thought it was when I was successful that I was most like Christ. <laughs> You've been watching too much TV. 
<laughs> you need to get back in the Word. Because most of the Gospels, everything Jesus did, there was opposition and suffering. Read your Bible, you'll find that out. Most of you know that anyway. But I'm just letting you know. If you join us online, you didn't know that. That's the truth. All right? So, we cannot be, we cannot be God nor Jesus, but Scripture calls for us to pursue holiness and righteousness just as Jesus. We are not to just throw our hands up and give way to sin. We are to go upon our knees and give way to repentance and confession. We're going to sin. We're going to sin and we're going to fail at times. But if you're a child of God, you've got a pathway back to righteousness. And if you've never been saved, you have a pathway to righteousness too. You just ain't in it yet. And you've got to step off your own path to step into the path of Christ, which is a hard path. It was a path that led him to death. And we should not be ashamed of Christ, nor should we forsake him either when we are persecuted or are in suffering. For what better time is there to turn and depend on Christ than when we are persecuted or forsaken? He is not the one persecuting or forsaking us. Turn to him. Christ did. And you and I should. You and I should. Christ turned to the Father. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. The Lord God gave his help for Christ to strengthen his resolve. There are verses 7 through 9. Well, you're probably like, wait a minute, you skipped the verse. I'm coming back to it. I'm coming back to it. 7 through 9, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. That's where I've got my whole title from. And I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Well, this, this is what will happen to them that stand against the Lord. Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The Lord God, look at these in these verses in verse 7. The Lord God would not allow Christ to be disgraced. The work that Christ came to do was a fully commendable act. More than that, it is a fully accomplished act. Fully accomplished. It's more than just commendable. It's accomplished. It's done. The work of Christ is done now. There was nothing left undone. There was nothing for anyone to add for salvation to be whole. There was nothing from the life of Christ, there was, excuse me, there was nothing from the life to which Christ lived, died, and resurrected that was disgraceful. Nothing. It was a life full of grace, and because of it, we can live. The Lord God would not allow Christ to be disgraced. The Lord God would not allow him to be ashamed you see there, it says, therefore I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. In setting his face like a flint, there was no deviation or stumbling or falling for Christ in his focus and end goal of salvation for mankind. You know, there are a lot of actions. There are a lot of actions to which may bring shame on an individual, right? There's a lot of actions. You know, some of them are shameful acts that maybe you have done in private, some in public. Maybe you've deviated, you've, you've stumbled, you've, fa you've fallen. I know I have. Sometimes I've fallen in front of a large group. And I can tell you about some. I'll tell you about a couple. I ain't got a whole lot of time, so I'll tell the shorter one. I had a longer one. I'll save it for another time. We were playing in basketball. Most of my stuff happens around basketball. At Walter Welburn High School gym, 
On one end, there was the stage, and it was pretty close underneath the basketball goal. And so the ball goes up on the stage, okay? And the stage is, you know, from, from the top of this stage, it's about this high, okay? So, you know, as a teenager, you know, no big deal, you run down there. The basketball had bounced up there. Well, the wrestlers would roll out their wrestling mats up on the stage to practice during basketball season because it couldn't be on the gym floor while we were practicing. So I jump up there, and I run, and I get the basketball, okay? You know, when these mats, these rubber mats are about that thick, I go up there, and when they unroll them, the corners don't lay down quite too well. So I grab that basketball, you know, everybody's out there on the court practicing. I don't know if they're, I don't remember what point of the practice we were in. But I pick that ball up, and I'm thinking, I'm about to be cool. I'm going to dribble this thing, jump off the stage, dribbling it, and continue dribbling it as I hit the court. Sure I was. Sure I was. So I come down through there, and I'm, a, I'm about to, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting prepped. I see that. Oh, I'm about to get. And about that time, that corner's curled up, and my toe catches it. I go down, that basketball lands right in my throat. And I was like, pow. I jumped up, jumped off that stage, just kept it going. Whole time rubbing my throat. Oh, man. Looked around. I thought, I thought nobody saw it. We got in the locker room after practice. Boy, you look dumb up there, Blake. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. You know, that was, that was a little shameful, you know. It brought a little shame on me there for a little bit. Uh, I'll tell you my other story. It's even more shameful. Uh, it was embarrassing. Maybe that's a better word. Not really shameful, but it was embarrassing. But um, I'm telling you, that, that hurt. It hurt because it was disgraceful. It was, it was shameful. And uh, I thought I was really cool there for a minute. And then I was really not cool. We've done things in our lives that are shameful. But you know what, though? Christ didn't do a single thing that was shameful. Not even something that's comical. I, I mean, like, I think Christ had a sense of humor, but I don't think he did anything that was shameful or brought disgrace on the name of the Lord. I mean, I don't know if that brought any shame or disgrace. Of course, my dad, if he would have been there, he'd have been like, oh, you know. Uh, or my brother. My brother played basketball at the school, too. He probably would have been a little embarrassed. But, um, but you know, it, it didn't happen that way. But at the same time, Christ never did anything that would bring shame on the Father's name. Not a single thing. And I know I've done plenty to bring shame or disgrace in the name of Christ. But thankfully, I have a forgiving Father. And He forgives me of that. And then we look at the last part, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God will justify him before his accusers and abusers. There in verses 8 and 9. Christ's work will be justified by the Lord God himself. Christ was justified in his rising from the grave. All his claims of being Christ is justified when by the power of God he is raised from the tomb. We read in Romans 1, 1 through 4, and this is a little choppy part of verses 1 through 3, and then we hit all of verse 4. But Christ the Son was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's how he was justified. He was justified by the fact that he didn't just die on the cross. It was all justified that he is who he said he was because the grave could not hold him. That justified who he was. God the Father raised his son from the dead and said, 
That's how he's justified. That's how all the things that he said, that he did in the power of his father's name, all the healings that he did, all the words that he spoke was all because, it was all justified by the fact that 500 people saw him after he was supposedly dead, because he was dead, and he rose again. 500 people saw him. It justified him right there as the son of God. God the Father would not allow him to be, uh, to be uh, disgraced or ashamed before his accusers and abusers, but rather he would be justified. And we know those that did that are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is absolutely what he's talking about. And it's very much talking about also a trial-type atmosphere. This language has so much about being in a court-type situation. You know, uh, who justifies me? Who contends with me? Who's my adversary? You know, all this is very much court language. And it's, I mean, this is all prophetic words about what's going to happen to Christ. But listen, in all of this, in all of this, these folks that stood against him, uh, I'm going to hit this very quickly and then I'm going to get to the final point. Uh, when it says, indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. We know that if you don't, if you if you try to store clothes that keep them from decades ago and say, I'll fit in them again, not a good idea. Maybe so, but most likely not. But you better throw some mothballs in those things, or else you're gonna have a bunch of little bugs eating them up. Okay? That's what happens. That's what happens. And I'll tell you what's even worse is back then, most of their clothes were made out of cotton, 100 percent cotton. There weren't no different. Uh, materials mixed up in that because, you know, Levitical law said you shouldn't have uh, different, uh, different clothing made of different fabrics. But nonetheless, they had cotton, so they had to make sure that it, the moth was, was a terrible thing, a terrible thing at that time to let them get up in there and start having eggs and babies because they'd eat their clothes up. So what he's saying is, is you might think you're doing something and you might think you look all nice, but there's things in you growing it's eating you from the inside out because that's what a moth does. And he says, you think you're going to contend with, with the servant? You think that's going to happen? Nah, you're going to waste away just like the clothes when moths get, it, get into them. That's a pretty disgusting way to go if you think about it. I'm sorry, right? It's a pretty disgusting way to go. But that's what he's saying. That's, that's, the, that's the illustration that he's using there. But I want you to understand this, verses 10 and 11. The servant, Jesus Christ, gave his body... Excuse me, go back to verse 6. The servant, Jesus Christ, gave his body for you and for me, for our salvation. Which is another word I, which I gave to April, which is substitutionary atonement. He stood in our place as our substitute. He stood in our place. And look at what they did to him. He gave his body. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me. The two previous servant songs in Isaiah, you find hints of opposition to the Messiah's ministry. But in this third song, his suffering is vividly described. In the fourth servant song, which is found over in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, we learn, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Those stripes were across his back. 
And that scripture says in verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me. And you know what's interesting to me? When you read that, I read that in two different ways. Yes, he gave his back physically at that time to the Romans to strike him. But he also gave his back as a way of forgiveness. Of forgiveness. Look upon me. This is what you should receive for your sin. But this is what I'm taking for you. I gave my back. He said, I gave my back. This is what Jesus gave for you. God gave him all these things so that he may give to you and me. He says, I gave my back to those who struck me. Physically, I gave it to them. I sat there. And if you've seen the passion of the Christ, which anybody in this room, I look around, just about anybody in this room should be of age to watch that. It's graphic. And it finally looks like what really happened to Christ. The Bible tells us that you would not even be able to know who he was when he hung up on that cross. They beat him so bad and, and, and whipped him with a cat of nine tails. He gave his back and he gave his beard. Look there, it says, and my cheeks, I gave my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I, I can't even fathom what that was like. I don't know if you noticed, my goatee's a little thinner today. And so I was trimming it up with the trimmer. And buddy, I caught that thing with that thing a little deep. Ooh! You guys, and, and ladies, you know, when, when you're doing some shaving and you catch it just a little low, and it pulls it, oh, oh, and to have somebody come in and just pluck that out right out of your face. Listen, this is, what, this is what one of the commentaries said. His beard would be pulled out as a sign of the people's contempt of him. That word contempt, we don't use it very often today. It means scorn or disgrace. This act was one of the highest insults that could be imagined in the Middle East. It was also an expression of wrath or moral outrage and indignation. Ezra pulled out his own hair in Ezra 9.3. And in a similar attitude, Nehemiah pulled out the hair of Jews who intermarried with heathen. Wow. In Nehemiah 1.25, do not be unequally yoked. Boy, they took that for real then, didn't they? <laughs> pulled out their beards. Listen, a beard was, was a sign of, of, of eldership. And then to have that plucked out, he gave, he gave his back. He gave his beard and he gave his face. It says, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The face of Christ had become quite known with compassion and healing and teaching. And for those to shame his face and to spit on his face were to shame and spit on his works and teachings. In disgracing him publicly, with no foundation of accusation, they thought they were destroying his cause, but they were only increasing the soon expansion of it. They thought they were, they thought they were putting him down. They thought they were putting him away, but they had no idea all you're doing is making people really want to follow him all the more. Because people knew, the, the, the true people knew, he had done no wrong. And for you to do wrong unto those that had not done any wrong, you're going to find out real quick. People are going to follow after them. There's going to be people rising up to stand with that individual. And that was with Christ, thankfully. So what will you give in response? What will you give in response? Verses 10 and 11, it's, it's the question to us. It's, it's very much an invitation. Very similar to what I would normally give. 
in what I am going to give. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who does those things? You know, Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. If that's not one of the most clear invitations in the entire Bible, some preachers say, I don't believe in an invitation. What do you call that? That's an invitation. Do you walk in darkness? Do you, walk in, or do you want to walk in light? Trust in the Lord and rely upon his God. But for those of you who want to rebel, those of you who say, no, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe, I don't believe in Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Look there at verse 11. The, word, the Bible's got a word for you too. Look, all you who kindle a fire. Look, all you who encircle yourselves with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire and the sparks you have kindled. This, shall, this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in tor torment. God's saying, look, you don't want none of me? Here's my open hand. You can step from it. But the Bible tells us that if we are in the Father's hand, nothing can pluck us from the Father's hand. But he's saying, here it is. My hand's open. If you want to rebel, if you don't want to receive, if you don't want to trust and rely on this God, go. One of the most clear signs of the choice of the individual on whether or not you're going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ or if you're going to surrender your life to you, yourself, and the devil. You're going to rebel or are you going to submit? There's only two ways. In submission, you get the greatest freedom. In rebellion, you'll get the ever greatest bondage, and that is an eternity in hell. What you want to do? What are you going to do?